Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around, drink tasty beverages, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that will not agree but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's writing brunch is David Welsh and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 177, Interview with Dr. Alan Wu. Welcome, Dr. Wu. May I call you Alan? Yes, and uh, thank you, Jeannie and David, for hosting me today. We're so delighted. You you kind oh, of came in brilliantly with my desire to say, it is every writer's dream, if they are a right-thinking, good writer, to actually be as accurate as possible in all the aspects of their book. For instance, Dave threw a story of mine across the room once when I referred to a gun having a safety that did not have a safety. My friend won't watch Boston Legal Holds a Lawyer because it's a Boston Legal. So the fact that you both write forensic procedurals and run a lab, is this is amazing. You have produced a wonderful body of work for writers. Plus, I love that you've started writing it as science fiction yourself. Well, yes, um, I have been writing scientific and medical reports for the better part of 40 years. Uh, these are not uh, geared towards the lay public, so there's a lot of technical jargon. But then I felt that uh, there was more and uh, had a flair for writing to uh, the more general public and sort of just uh, passing on some of the experiences that I've had in science and medicine. Well, I actually really loved it. I was walking through in some of your titles, microbiology, what you don't know will kill you. <laughs> and the hidden assassin when clinical lab tests go awry. I haven't bought that one yet, but it's on my list. Tell me, I, in the last, there's one on toxicology. Tell me how you collected all of these pieces together to decide what are you going to clump together in a work? Well, um, I have, as part of uh, what we do, um, write case reports that are unusual findings or unusual outcomes of patients, again, designed for medical audiences, colleagues of mine, both in medicine and in pathology and laboratory medicine. And that is sort of the fodder for the stories that I write to the general public. There's obviously some differences that need to be made, not above and beyond the obvious one that most people won't understand some of the medical terminology, which is presumed in, in medical writing. But of the course. other part is that I need to be mindful of privacy laws. And since these are based on real stories and real patients, hmm. I want to make sure that the real people who may still be around, or at least their family members, don't come back to me and saying, you're disclosing public information or you're, you're disclosing publicly private information about my family. So I've had to fictionalize. But at the same time, I think that that gives me a little bit of literary freedom to embellish to some extent, while still keeping the science and medicine as accurate as possible. So you're kind of the uh, uh, laboratory medical uh equivalent of Oliver Sacks, if you're familiar with his works, sounds like you're doing a similar thing. Yeah, very much so. And I think I'm sort of an N equals one because there's not a lot of us <laughs> in my profession who have this uh, desire or has this vocation to do that. 
And mm -hmm. so for me, it has been uh, a lot of fun. I was I was thinking about it, and I'm sure this probably makes you cringe because when House first came out, the idea that they actually used real case files, they introduced an entire world to the idea of what vasculitis, sarcoidosis, et cetera, were. And as it happens, I have a friend down in Australia, hi, Craig, who has both of those things and writes about it constantly on social media. But that made it interesting. And I think it may have actually gotten people to want to go to medical school, but there's a downside of it, right? I mean, you're probably going to tell me something like how the lab technique isn't right or something crazy. House is a, a wonderful show, uh, and it is sort of the model for some of my stories in that the objective here is to make a diagnosis, and it could be something unusual or it could be something that is typical but might have a twist to it. The, that's all good, and it has done a lot of good in um, making the public aware of the kinds of things that could happen and the kinds of problems that people face. My only objection is the portrayal of the laboratory information. Dr. House comes to the lab, might pull up a microscope slide, look at it and has a aha medical moment. And that's really what does not happen in real <laughs> life. Right. Are you saying that that XKCD well, comic is more true to life, that they say, ah, we're going to look at it for three hours and say it may or may not have barium in it? <laughs> and to some extent, it diminishes our real contributions. Not that I'm looking to have people um, uh, <clears throat> send me accolades, but in the real public, it may be a demand of their caregivers that they're unable to deliver, that really um, medical information is delivered by medical laboratory professionals, and they um, do the lion's share of the uh, background work. And, and then the physician takes that information and makes their medical conclusions. So it's all part of the team, but uh, we're an integral part that is unrecognized. I, I feel strongly that this is true. I mean, I have I have a soapbox that I won't mount too thermally here on on women's health and how the cross diagnosis is, but there's part of me that hopes that somebody would look at endocrine systems and changing endocrine systems with brain chemistry and why why do more white guys want to kill themselves after age forty versus why do more women have this problem, you know, and then their brain changes and it's all connected. And I believe that lab medicine and some of the writing you've done shows the interconnectedness of the whole system. So treating them like a holistic human, not just, oh, well, they were addicted to drugs. Well, why were they addicted to drugs? What were the underlying things that like for instance your Elvis story? Maybe Elvis wasn't just a loser who did drugs. You know, maybe instead Elvis was dealing with pain and Elvis was dealing with medical conditions that ran undiagnosed. And it's neat what you did. Well, well, thank you. Um, I appreciate that you uh, get the objective. The objective is that my profession is highly investigational in nature, has a lot of tools that are put to bear to a, in this case, medical problems, and that uh, a lot of the things that we're able to do in medicine could not have been done without us. 
that is not to diminish the again the the roles of physicians and nurses who are making the decisions and caring for these patients but the science behind that is also important absolutely it almost worries me how seldom and this is you know we don't want to get on a rant or soapbox about the insurance companies etc but it strikes me that many people might actually have benefited in their life by having more tests ordered by their doctors rather than fewer so long as the uh, tests are done correctly and the tests that are ordered are interpreted correctly so part of uh, what i write and it's some of the reasons that the titles of my stories are a little cryptic is that i deal with a uh, sort of a um, unwritten law here and that is nobody wants to talk about medical errors which account for the third leading cause of death in the united states after uh cancer and heart disease and and um <clears throat> we're all humans and we make mistakes except that when doctors make mistakes people's lives are affected when the laboratory makes mistakes people's lives are um, influenced so there is certainly a higher bar and part of what i write is to alert the public that um <clears throat> information can be flawed and that we need to continuously improve and here are the reasons here are some some of the things that didn't go well for one reason or another i think that is very noble um much in the way that we have learned policing in the world on tv is presented a certain way as they do everything right but dave and i witnessed a murder once and i i can tell you that dave got frisked what twice dave oh <laughs> uh, yeah i didn't and get she was no she genie was standing there with a uh, with a bag that could have held a, a small car in it and they just like glanced Get at my her. hands around the corpse's neck. Let's not forget <laughs> when they walked. <laughs> well, you were looking for a pulse, but they didn't know that. <laughs> exactly. All they knew is I had my hands around the neck of somebody and he's lying on the ground and I'm over them, etc. And but, I, but I'm a male wearing a leather jacket. So yeah, frisk him. He might, he might have a gun. They asked me if I had a weapon. And mm -hmm. then they started doing other things, and I was confused that none of them were actually administering first aid to this man lying here, since I think I felt his last heartbeat. And I'm like, and I started ordering them around. Now, later, I put it into a book, and my group, my group of readers said, that's not a realistic scene. And I'm like, but I wrote it exactly the way it happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they brought up the television and movies have convinced people that every people do all of the right things at all of the right times. So you're pointing out, I mean, you're, you're almost saying that Bones is a lie, that all of that lab and forensic investigation, that it can actually go wrong sometimes. But this is how you know, and this is how you find right, out. That, that doesn't make good drama. It doesn't make the, doesn't make the uh, protagonists on the series look good. So I think it could, though. Well, Unfortunately, when I, when I give, these, give lectures about what I'm trying to do to um, professional groups, I get criticized because um, <clears throat> nobody wants to uh, to say that we're fallible. Nobody wants to admit that uh, mistakes happen. And I think there's also uh, some protection, cover your ass type of attitude that uh, we don't want to be the focus of any type of uh, medical malpractice. Yeah. So I, I kind of spin it the other way. 
And, and that is that um, so much of what we do in the lab contributes to the medical decisions that are ultimately made. And that in the past, um, particularly my generation, there's just a universal acceptance that your doctor knows best about what should be done with you. And I think that the next generation, or even the one beyond the next, will have the attitude that, no, I'm going to go on the internet. I'm going to find out what these tests mean. I'm going to um, go to WebMD or some credible site to understand the um, reasons why certain tests are ordered and what the interpretations of those tests are. And so to take a little bit of responsibility for the medical decisions that are being made, not to say that we want you to play doctor, but to, to at least have cogent conversations with your provider about what it is that you're doing right. instead no. of just accepting at face value. Yeah, absolutely. Like um, I've, I frame it a lot of times as knowing which questions to ask because I'll, I'll, I'll start looking at something and I have enough wrong with me that I, you know, have to go to the doctor and ask questions or find out what's wrong. And uh, I wasn't going to say like that. Say, <laughs> what is wrong with you, man? <laughs> we don't have long enough. So, um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, uh, so in having a conversation with my doctors, um, I have encountered doctors who uh, had an agenda. I took a, a drug for a while that didn't seem to do me any good, but uh, I was on it for longer than I probably should have been uh, because uh, I'm convinced of this. I mean, I never asked, but um, the way they pushed it seemed like and it was an expensive medication. So mm -hmm. I, the way they pushed it seemed like, okay, well, they're, you know, they're, they're getting a kickback or, or it's to their advantage to prescribe this to me, even if it's not working. And, you know, that, that kind of, and I'm, you know, like Jeannie says, she has uh, similar experiences in, in different ways, but those kinds of experiences kind of, at least to me, convinced me that, yeah, you know, it, it, you need to be a, a part of the, conversation you need, need to be kind of directing your own uh, your own health care and some to some degree but your approach here of adding a little bit of fictionalization even I, i'm not going to call it magic i'm going to call it science that i don't understand um in terms of a fellow yukuk and telepathy and this is in your i think it's your latest book mind portal well is it's that, it's my science fiction book yes that's yeah, a departure it, from the others it is. It, it basically says, all right, if I can project something to make somebody think something different, how can I change their medical, their, their early end? Like, and, you know, Elvis being, you know, wonderful, but I liked the lady who was involved with the EPA. I knew her name, but I read it, you know, I didn't read a lot of what could she have done if she had lived? And similarly, yeah. we, we chatted with episode 137, Laura Francos wrote a book called Broadway Revival, where a man goes back in time physically with modern medicines to save the lives of Gershwin and other Broadway writers who died early from, you know, heart disease and cancer. Well, well I think that's that's yeah. uh, kind of one of the key points is the the science fiction part of it, or at least that science fiction part of it, affecting people's minds uh, telepathically in the past is is uh, a device, just it like is. the time travel um, is to um, to you know to play what if and. Um, so the, the real the real interesting part of these stories, or at least a, the biggest, most interesting part to me is the the medical what if. I mean, the, the rest of it's just a, a vehicle for getting there. 
And maybe it's also what testing they didn't have in the 40s that could have fixed this or the 60s. Well, but... right, but that's part of the medical part of it. That's yeah. nothing to do with being able to fix somebody's mind, right? That's just, a, again, a, a plot device. I, to my, I mean, to my to my mind, Alan, if, if, if there's something more to it than that that I'm missing, let me know. I... Well, there is an underlying mission for me writing any of these stories, and that is to promote what we do. And the reason that... I think it's important is the federal government has uh, enacted legislation in 2019 as part of the Healthcare Reform Act to re to reduce laboratory reimbursements across the board for outpatients at the tune of 20 percent with the next round being scheduled for next year. And so as I enter my senior years, I am hoping that the level of laboratory and medical care that I've been able to provide will be there for me. And I am fearful that the answer is, is that it's not going to be there for me, that the advancements that I've been a part of throughout my career will be more difficult to achieve. There's so much more yet we have to do. And if we, if we continue to lose funding, then uh, those things are not going to happen. So that is actually my ultimate goal. Now, Mind Portal is sort of a sidetrack. It's it, uh, not the major reason I write these stories, but I'm hoping that as you read them, you come to appreciate, yeah, it didn't happen in in uh, uh, King Henry VIII's time, or it didn't happen with uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but we have laboratory tests that could have changed the outcome of these people, and perhaps we should be continuing to invest so that the next generation of leaders will benefit from it. And that's not going to happen if we continue to have these legislative cuts. I, I liked that. I, I also, you added the personal bits of it that I really enjoyed, not just the, the toxicology, toxicology, the little bit of genetic disease, the chemistry tests. You put that together in a way that said, Again, the all relatedness of all things that if somebody maybe was depressed or maybe they were in pain or maybe they were self-medicating of all of the different ways that people have treated how they feel on a daily basis, what could have been discovered with the right tests? And maybe in looking back and saying, wow, okay, maybe we would lose fewer people to drug overdoses if they actually got the right kind of medical care and testing. That's a very, very powerful message. Well, thank you. It's not, not such a, a direct message through the front door. It's really from the side door or the back door. But, oh, uh, I thought it was a baseball bat. It was beautiful for me. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering why everybody over the age of 50 is not involved in one or the other medical studies because, hey, we're 50. We don't study aging in our country, and I sure wish we did. Again, uh, uh, we are entering uh, those years where we're going to demand the kinds of things that, uh, and rightfully so. Well, and we also have, a, let's face it, we have a little bit more legislative power than some of the kids do because we've written more. Like there was four years ago, I had many of writer friends in the science fiction fantasy world were saying, well, what can I do about politics? And I'm like, you can write. Do you not remember when a woman stood up in front of the Arizona legislation and filibustered for a 
24, 36 straight hours. And part of that was by reading letters that people had written to her about real life people affected by the legislation being mentioned. So if any of these things affect us, people, I, I want to say out there, even if you don't think of yourself as a writer, be a writer, use a whole lot of words and say, this diminishment of funding that you give to the National Institute of Health affects me because, and then write it out. And why matters? And you have given a beautiful set of whys out here. So I'm, I'm also fearful for another thing that perhaps it's a little sidebar, but people tell me, you know, the young people uh, of our country don't read anymore. They just uh, look at YouTube or TikTok or Instagram. And, and is, that, uh, is that the kind of generation we're going to be seeing? I think actually that's not 100% correct. Where they find things to read are different. But for instance, I have a friend who said, yes, they do stumble, stumble upon and Tumblr. Like, these are not sites that I am. The demographic is younger, but that's where they get together and talk. Oh, what are you reading? Well, I'm reading this. And so I think what happens is those of us that are dinosaurs are still on the dinosaur sites. And we are not necessarily reaching out into those to say, hey, and here's a book, here's a story of this. I mean, you could literally, and I may try to talk you into this, read one of your stories aloud as an episode and just record it and put it out there on an Instagram or or a tic TikTok if yeah. necessary, or if TikTok's not legal where you are in the world, people, you know, whatever, YouTube, throw something out there and say, I did this, here's a recording of me talking, and this is why it's interesting. I think I think that the the internet and all the the dumbing down of, of media and so forth does have an effect, but um, the real uh, issue in my mind is is education. Um, I think education has has come to be less valued than it used to be uh, in in our society and, and maybe even worldwide in general. Because it's ten um, times as expensive as when you and I went to school, Dave. <laughs> Well, Have you seen CU's register? Well, that, I mean, yeah, you can argue cause and effect there too. Um, you know, would, would education anyway? Um, that's another rabbit hole. Uh, but um, let me pull it out and go in a different direction. Then, if you don't mind, uh, go ahead, <laughs> Alan. You I said the E word. That's good. That's good enough for me for now. Okay. It looks like you've been deep into the coronavirus research and investigations in the past few years. I saw that you had a number of interviews and things that were recorded for those of you who like things that are uh, visual stimulating. Have you? Have That's you, it. Encourage them. Go ahead. I'm going to encourage them. Anyway. I, I, it looks like you've been involved with it a lot. What have you learned about um people and audience and coronavirus and understandings and lack of understandings. I mean, there's a narrative, whether we like it or not, that has been exploited on every which way but Sunday. What are your thoughts? Yeah, this whole um, pandemic has been an eye opener, not because of the impact that it's had on everybody's lives and, and health and, and the death rates, but the, uh, the degree of misinformation and the extent by which uh, concepts have been politicized is uh, really frustrating to me. You know, I live in a pretty black and white world of evidence that if it's not um, documented in a good clinical trial, then, uh, then I don't pay attention to it. But so much of the information that we get is not 
evidence-based. It's not rigored in scientific um, doctrines, and yet it's um, it's out there, and so many people are influenced by it, and so much of it is is uh, motivated by the wrong reason. So this is very disturbing to me. I don't think that uh, it's going to change, however, because we, we live in a politically polarized environment that's just getting getting more and more separated. Yeah, yeah and to tie that back to something you were talking about, that kind of attitude, those kinds of attitudes, um, when they take hold, can, can and do lead to um, cutting funding for research and stuff like that. So, I mean, we were we're, we were unprepared for this pandemic, but, uh, you know, we're supposed to be learning lessons from this one and taking those forward to prepare for the next one. And um, in a lot of cases, that's just not happening. I think a lot, it was- a lot of finger pointing, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it didn't help it when I think he did have a PhD. I'm going to call him Ivermectin Boy because I don't want to remember his name but that he was involved with some of the mRNA research. And then he went out and, and kind of went crazy sideways for making money. And that, that, oh, that hurts me in my hurdy place a little bit. Some of my colleagues as well, who I thought were uh, very much rooted in, in uh, evidence, have uh, sort of gone off uh, on their own to, to make uh, undocumented opinions and I question their motivations. Not always clear, you know. If it's if it's um, making money, I, I I've seen that, but that's not always the case. Yeah, and well, we can't fix other people, but we can say whenever you want, I want to say whenever you go out there and read an article that says trimming your fingernails will help save your eyesight. Keep in mind that it better have links and go click keep clicking through the articles until you get to the original study. And if you don't understand it, go ask your doctor. Is that fair to say? I think so. I think that uh, um, it's likely that the clergy and the medical profession are less uh, tainted by politics than uh, perhaps uh, other walks of life. One one can hope under many circumstances. Yeah. So are you familiar with, um, I'm going to take a little bit of a tangent here, but uh, somebody is doing work that uh, this conversation reminded me of. So uh, here you go. Are you familiar with um, your local epidemiologist uh, news? And I'm blanking on the name of the, 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 that's a woman who's an epidemiologist and she writes this newsletter and um, she started during COVID and it was all about COVID, but she's branched out since to talk about other uh, epidemiology subjects. Um, Caitlin, something maybe, uh, I'll put it in the program notes, but um, is this something that you're familiar with or is this a new? No, I don't, I don't know this person. Okay. But anyway, I mean, it sounds like her mission is, is much the same. She, she does a good job of explaining uh, epidemiology uh, and looking at from an evidence-based perspective without, without dumbing it down too much. She actually puts like the original charts from, uh, you know, studies and stuff into her newsletter if, if they're relevant. I, I honestly think that there are places that social media can help. For instance, there was a doctor that was talking about why masks actually work and for the people that it says well i'm wearing a mask why can i swear you know but i can still smear, smell farts 
And I spent the whole day laughing about how farts are measured in Daltons as opposed to the different size differential. And now the fact that I just simply know without even thinking about it, how large a fart molecule is makes me tremendously happy. And because all of the world is fart jokes, there's a long way that really complex, medically interesting things can be rendered interesting to the reader. And I love that you do that through Mind Portal, is you do make it a bit forensic investigation, but there's a little bit of funny, there's a little bit of humanity in it. There's, you can laugh at yourself, laugh at them and say, oh, I see parallels with other people in that. And I, that's what I really loved about your book there. Again, thank you. Um, I don't want it to be uh, so dry that nobody will ever read chapter two. And um, I think that you you uh, you got some of my, at times, um, um, bathroom humor. <laughs> <laughs> I did, actually. That was one of the things I really appreciated about it. Now, I, I understand, did you tell me that you were working with some screenwriters and producers to possibly get work into television series? I mean, as an I don't know if you'd be the core writer because we have learned from other people we've interviewed that usually on a television series, there's a whole team of writers. But in terms of crime scene investigation, what's our future vision of Dr. Wu here? Yeah, so it is just that. It is a um, show pattern after CSI, which used science to solve medical crime, sorry, science to solve crime. Um, I want to say that we're using science to solve medical mysteries. Before CSI, all the crime shows were about cops and detectives and, and some lawyers. And, and now it's about the science. Today, all the medical shows are about doctors and nurses. And I want my show to center around the clinical laboratory using doctors and nurses to um, enact the science that we create, just like CSI as policemen and detectives who use the information that the crime scene investigators provide. And in that way, this will highlight the importance of what we do. Just like today, um, the crime scene investigators are now valued. You know, the, uh, the things that happened during the OJ trial um, <clears throat> in terms of the handling of evidence, in my mind, greatly favored the defendants um, <clears throat> without stating my view of guilt or innocence, just the fact that the uh, evidence was so botched prior to the onset of that television show was a major determinant. Yeah. Today, that wouldn't happen. Today, we have invested in crime scene uh, investigators and, and uh, laboratories. Jurists have a much higher bar of understanding of science as they reach verdicts. And this is the kind of uh, buzz that I need to create for cl clinical laboratories that uh, patients, not victims, as in CSI, but patients will well, understand right. what with, it is that we're doing. With the caveat that they have sometimes unrealistic expectations about what those laboratories can do. But it sounds like you're saying that overall the effect has been positive. I don't yes. know. I'm I'm now imagining a scenario if you know not like justified, but maybe like justify. Let's say there was a a well off, well established toxicologist, you know, lab technician such as I don't know, somebody named Dr. Wu, who really pissed somebody off and the only position that he got was in 
Kentucky that wanted to take him there. So he had to make friends with a local, you know, policeman investigating public defender in order to start getting lab work applied to actual crimes for the first time. So it would be frustrating, but there are areas that don't have access to these facilities or the knowledge or experience. I mean, we, we do not have equality across all of our states. So this sort of well, thing. Yeah, that's certainly true. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that uh, people that assume that all medical clinics can handle all issues that come their way, that's kind of a lie. So, you know, the traveling, <laughs> the traveling Dr. Wu going town to town in the South to just educate public defenders on what can be available there could be a super interesting idea too. Very good. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> I mean, because it's in the end, it's not the DA, it's the public defenders that are talking to people that are getting, shall we use the term railroaded in one way or another. So. Well, there's yeah. a lot of, um, a lot of uh, vested interests that, you know, want to keep good science out of well, <laughs> various areas. We've already talked about that a little bit, right? But um, no, no, I think I think it's a. But I could say it was just yet another idea of for for those of you outdoors who were want to write such a thing. Uh, Doctor Wood, you also consult. Can somebody reach out to you and say, "Can you look at this and tell me if it's real?" Or would there be too much of your time spent doing that? Saying no, no, hell no, maybe. <laughs> no, I I would be happy to. To talk to anybody who has uh, an issue that they want to bring up that they think that I might have some knowledge of, about some um, contributions that could be made. I, I welcome that. Wonderful. Well, I will uh, would be delighted to put the links um, to the fascinating things we've discussed along with how somebody might reach out to you asking a question like, okay, I want to have a bullet that pierces this, but we don't know that until later. What would the symptoms be? That kind of thing you could help them out? Well, if it's related to um, how a laboratory can solve that question, then yes. Exactly, because the steps are interesting. <laughs> if it comes down to, you know, what what drug should I take or, or should I have the surgery or that surgery, no. that I have to leave to the, uh, to the attending physicians for sure. No, no, this is yeah. pure interesting discovery and testing of what, what exists and what chemically for, maybe related to other things for, for writing speculative fiction speculative fiction so again we will put links on our website which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com thank you so much for taking the time with us today alan this is fantastic well uh i enjoyed our talk you just i guess uh you never know where the direction of the discussion will go and i certainly uh, uh enjoyed uh, having that dialogue today Especially on our show, just saying. <laughs> well, and I will put links to your website and where they can buy your fascinating and interesting books. So people who are doing your research, do your research right so that one day, what if Alan's reading one of your books and says, that's not how it is, needs to shout at you. Try to get it right the first time by having good reference <laughs> materials, right? Everybody wants truth. Truth is beautiful. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineers and backup web spiders are Dave Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro and exit music are both performed by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on ManyHatsMusic.com. 
Our podcast today is sponsored by Jackal Design, The Bean Scene, Arm Street, and honorable mention to the NIH for funding research labs all over the U.S. And hey, thanks for listening.